Sherlock Case 66. Jifeng's Head and Tail. Introduction. Those with supernatural power and marvelous activity can't step in. Those who have forgotten externals and eliminated thoughts still cannot lift up a foot. Let us say that sometimes they are the running dead, sometimes they are the sitting dead. How can they be made complete? The main case. Attention. A monk asked Zhu Feng, what is the head? Zhu Feng said, opening the eyes and not being aware of the dawn. The monk asked, what is the tail? Zhu Feng said, not sitting on an eternal seat. The monk asked, what about having the head and no tail? Zhu Feng said, after all, it's not precious. The monk asked, what about having the tail and no head? Zhu Feng said, though satisfied, you are powerless. The monk asked, how about when head and tail are directly well matched? Zhu Feng replied, a descendant gains power without knowing it. The verse, a compass for a circle a ruler for the square. With use, it functions well. With neglect, it hides. Stupid and bumbling, a bird dwelling in reeds. Going back and forth, a sheep caught in a fence. Eating others' food, sleeping in one's own bed. Clouds rise and rain falls. Dew collects and turns to frost. The well-aligned jewel string passes through the needle's eye. The embroidered thread unceasingly vomits from the shuttle's guts. The stone woman stops weaving, and the night's colors turn towards noon. A wooden man travels the road, and the moon's silhouette moves to half <clears throat> this Dharma is rarely met with, even in a million years. Yet now we see it, now we hear it. Which is it? Is it rare? Is it available? How can it be both? Where's the gap? Where's the duality? How is it that now we see it and now we hear it? And what's different now than five minutes ago? It is fascinating to observe how a few days of Sashin can destabilize our firm idea of what's internal and what's external. 
is we find ourselves being drawn into the depth of silence and continuously alternate between stillness and motion. The clock time seems to be swallowed by the multiple zazen periods, skinhin, formal meals, chanting, samu, and all other activities on the schedule. The dividing line that separates between all these segments and the being that seems to be moving through them all become blurry to a point of a constant flow, to a point of not knowing. You know, being in the depth of this experience, is it you who is doing zazen? Or is it Zazen doing you? Are you the one who's engaged in walking, sitting, eating, cleaning, chanting? Or is it you who is being carried forward by these activities and experiences? On the surface, Sashin is quite simple. It's a simple structure. And we can get the hang of it pretty quickly. Just follow the schedule and you're good to go. Yet this simplicity offers an immensely powerful opportunity to explore delusion and realization as they alternate in us on an experiential level. One moment, there's light. Next, there's darkness. One moment we get something, then we're lost again in confusion. From the perspective of delusion, I am the one who is doing all these activities as I am the one who is acting upon life. And then from the perspective of realization, life with all its manifestations give rise to the being I call me. Dogen said, conveying oneself toward all things to carry out practice enlightenment is delusion. All things coming and carrying out practice enlightenment through the self is realization. And we may begin Sushin with the intention to carry out practice enlightenment, as Dogen calls it. He actually made one word of that, practice enlightenment. But as time goes by and all the activities merge into one continuous experience, the desire to get somewhere or accomplish something may begin to fade away. And we may settle into single-minded engagement with each moment however it appears. And being settled, we can open up our hearts and let all activities carry our practice and nurture the awakening process. Instead of trying to do something, all we may need to do is open up and allow, allow it to carry us forward. And it can be deeply unifying experience of dynamically merging with each activity and becoming more in tune 
with the movement of the universe, as all sensei said. When we turn inwardly and take the time to examine our lives, we become aware of a deep-seated sense of discontent or misalignment, regardless of what we may have achieved, accumulated, or how fortunate we may be. It seems that the misalignment is still there and it produces a recurring feeling of discontentment and restlessness, which has a dire effect on the way we live and our, our relationships with each other and our environment. So, of course, it's imperative that we examine it, address it, sit with it. The Buddha identified this issue of misalignment as duality, which spans through all aspects of our lives and manifests in our speech and action. Almost every thought, every word, already comes out with its opposite. Every state of mind, every state of being, everything we look at, we already see in our mind, or the mind made, opposite of it. It is so deep, so deeply entrenched, that often we are not even aware of how dualistic we can be. Vimalakirti once asked Manjushri, what is the Bodhisattva's method of entering non-duality. Manjushri said, according to my mind, in all things, no speech, no explanation, no direction, and no presentation, leaving behind all questions and answers. This is the method of entering non-duality. Then Manjushri asked Vimalakirti, how do you respond to this question of entering non-duality? Vimalakirti was silent. How do we understand this silence? Was he avoiding the question? Did he choose to respond with silence rather than with speech? Or with stillness rather than with motion? Remember at the beginning Opening remarks for Sishin, I mentioned that the silence can be seen differently than the way we see it. It's not silence as opposed to sound. The silence we turn towards during Sishin is the silence that contains sound. It's the silence that allows for divisiveness and unity is the silence that does not judge, does not differentiate. It's the silence that unites. It's the silence before the question of non-duality or entering non-duality even comes up. So Vimalakirti did not answer the question 
He just expresses the before the question arises. But what do we do? We look for answers. Instead of asking about the question, we assume that the question is real. But maybe the question creates the division. It's like this question this student asked his teacher, where does rain come from? He said, it comes from your question. Questions come from questions. So for us, the question is, can we see, hear, and act in a non-dualistic way? Can we go to before, to a state of before? And where is that state anyway? Same with the rarity of this Dharma. Rarely met with, yet here it is. So how do we enter the gate of non-duality and function freely with every step? In the introduction to this Quran says, those with supernatural power and marvelous activity cannot step in. Those who have forgotten externals and eliminated thoughts still cannot lift up a foot. Let us say that sometimes there are the running dead and sometimes there are the sitting dead. Are we the running dead or the sitting dead? What are we doing here? What is this? Right? In, in some spiritual traditions, even among some Zen lineages, a few days of silent meditation event is called retreat. But this can be very misleading. In an effort, I think, to make the practice fit our time and culture, we may be letting go of vital and very powerful components of practice. So on a functional level, words are used for the sake of communication but they also have the power to evoke internal movement, right? Or act as a pointer and provide us with direction. And since the richness of vocabulary varies greatly between languages, we can't simply look at the closest word when translating from one language to another. This is one of the reasons why we, in our tradition, use the word sashin. And sashin literally means to collect one's heart and mind, which means to unify. The shin part of the word is referring to heart-mind as one word, which by itself cannot be translated to English. Translating this as a retreat by, is by implication creating something to retreat from. By implication, it is creating duality. So we, we practice unity and we may see it as we are here to escape or retreat from that. We are here and we are not there. That defeats the whole point of doing what we're doing or understanding what is it that we're doing. 
So we have to, some words, yeah, we can definitely translate, but, but we have to do, we have to see it in a way of upaya or as upaya. Does it really make sense? Or can we dive deeply into the word sashin, understand that we just don't have an equivalent for that in our vocabulary, and then use that? It's just a side note. But if we view Zazen or Sashin as a way to escape, then no matter how deep our Samadhi experience may be or how great our Kensho breakthrough may be, we will be left with the issue of duality. And we will not be able to know how to assimilate what we realize. Because I get it, I feel it, but then I go back down to the city or wherever, suburb, and... It doesn't make sense. Then I want to retreat again. So I can connect again. As the pointer says, those with supernatural power and marvelous activity cannot step in. Those who have forgotten external and eliminated thoughts still cannot lift up a foot. That is the sitting dead. So Zazen can kill us, or it can kill us, right? What kind of death is it, is the question. There's more than one way to die in terms of Zen practice. And we have to be aware of that. We can't just sit things out as an escape. It's called spiritual bypassing, but you know that. And then there are the running dead. And we can be as dead while going to work, raising a family, paying the bills, the blood may be flowing through our veins and we may be eating and defecating regularly. But we may be so consumed and blinded by worry and anxiety to a point of not being able to fully and freely engage with what's going on around us and other people. A lot of trepidations, a lot of baggage, a lot of complications, a lot of knots. We can be deeply attached to external conditions and held back by our past, by our thoughts and emotions, and by what our perceptions of what the world, or the perception of what the world think of us, or what we think that is. We can look in one direction and not see the other, or look in that direction and not see that direction. Right? So what we need to do is develop an all-encompassing way of seeing the ten directions all at once. Sounds dizzying. You got to turn around, look there, look there, but no. Now we see it, now we hear it. If we run around, look for it, it is rarely met with. 
Not because it's not available, it's because we don't know how to see. We don't know how to listen. So we have to cultivate everything, all aspects of our being, not neglect anything. There's a Taoist story about a city dweller and a hermit. The city dweller was a party guy, mingled with the crowds, directed all his attention to his physical existence. Maybe he became in love with himself, the way he looked, the way he felt. And then, the flip side of that, there was a cave dweller hermit who directed all his, his attention only to the cultivation of inward spirituality. And the story says that the cave dweller was eventually attacked by a tiger who consumed his body. And the city dweller was taken ill and was consumed by a disease that ate him from the inside. So the one who cultivated the inside was eaten on the outside. And the one who cultivated the outside was eaten on the inside. And it says, the last line to that story says that both of them forgot to pay attention to the lagging sheep which was left behind. It's like having, it's like being, having a herd of sheep, right? That you have to make sure that they all stay together, that you don't neglect anything because everything is an expression of the same thing. You neglect one, you neglect all. In this koan, the monk went to see Zhifeng about this issue of merging. And he began by asking, what is the head? Zhifeng said, opening the eyes and not being aware of the dawn. And the footnote says, the light doesn't go beyond the door. Now we can have Great moments of clarity in Zazen. Experience how the walls in the mind fall away and, and get glimpses of what freedom feels like. And then the next day comes. Then we encounter a challenging situation at home, at work, and again feel completely trapped. And we can't find a way to bring yesterday's realization to life today. When the light doesn't reach beyond the Zafu, we are sitting dead in the midst of the absolute. We don't know how to mobilize what we realize. It feels good. It felt good. And we're not imagining. But now what? Oh, what about the mess? We can ask. The monk then asked, what is the tale? Zhifeng said, not sitting on an, on an eternal seat. 
tails are very interesting extensions of the body, which we used to have. What we have now is a remnant of it. But animals, for example, right? How do they use tail? If you have a cat, you know how it's almost like a different creature. It has its own life, right? But they communicate something. There is, it's a, it is alive. And it is telling us something all the time. There is this functioning in it. It's all about functioning. It's all about how, how do I feel? How do I meet this moment? What do I do next? How do I move? It also is often act as a, as a way to balance when animals move, as a way to grab toward the flies, to defend themselves against predators, for swimming, for communication. And in essence, tails are used for functioning in everyday life. But when the attention is in the head, the tail may not be able to function. The monk then asked, what about having the head and no tail? And Zhu Feng said, after all, it's not precious. Before having some experience of realization, there is a sense of being on the path that leads to a hidden and precious treasure that can only be exposed through diligent and sustained practice. And it's partially true. But after going through a sustained process of awakening, we begin to understand that the preciousness of realization comes to life when we turn towards the simple and plain expressions of everyday life. It is realized in simplicity and it is actualized when shared with others in our daily interactions. The treasure of awakening shines brightly in what we call mundane activities. Without taking the vital step from realization to actualization, it is not precious. So everything we do here offers that, right? It's just, what are we doing here? Just walking around, we sit down, we get up, we go to the bathroom, we eat, flop the lips for a little bit when we chant, go to sleep, we wake up, do it again. That's it. Why people that don't do that think we are crazy, right? This is what you spend your vacation on? You must be crazy. So taking the vital step from realization to actualization. And this point is brought up in numerous cons. For example, a monk once asked Hugo, when a crane stands upon a withered pine, then what? Hugo said, on the ground below, it's a shame. After his great awakening, the Buddha felt that he would, it would be a shame to not share it with others and point directly to our inherent perfection. 
course, we are very fortunate he felt that way. Otherwise, there would not be a practice. But if we think it is a precious jewelry, it actually becomes a yoke around our necks. After all, it's not precious, or it's not what we think preciousness is. So to share it with others, right, to, to bring it to life, regardless of how others behave, regardless of what we encounter, this is absolutely a challenge. Because most people think that this is pointless activity. Right? In many cases, there is no understanding and definitely not much openness. How do you share? It's not so simple to share with others because most are not interested in listening to a teaching that says you create your own suffering. Your words and actions drive you deeper into entanglements and perpetuate, and you perpetuate greed, anger, and ignorance, which you complain about. It's much easier to blame others instead of taking responsibility. It's much easier to look out than to look in. I'm perfectly fine, but he, she, that, that's the reason why I'm unhappy. <clears throat> or my parents. It's another way to abnegate the responsibility, right? It's not me. I'm fine. They screwed me up. And in many cases, there's not even... The question, right? So we don't question, as we talked about yesterday, often we don't even question assumptions. So we may have an answer to a question that nobody is asking. So we need to learn how to skillfully act, realize and actualize whatever we realize and share this precious practice with, with the world freely and unconditionally. In other words, it takes practice to know how to share the practice. But it's the only way wisdom comes to fruition and can manifest. Because if it stays on the cushion, it is dead and we are dead with it. So we may encounter this incredible wisdom and medicine, truly medicine for a sick world. But we don't know how to administer it. Then what? Monk then asked, what about having the tail and no head? Zhifeng said, though satisfied, you are powerless. And this refers to the vital significance of satori or realization. A strong and dedicated practice without realization does not lead to the embodiment of Zen's essence, 
and can gradually result in watered-down version of Zen if it is taught in that way. You can shift if you need and adjust your position. Then the monk has one more question. How about when head and tail are directly well matched? How about when there is alignment? <coughs> Zhifeng replied, a descendant gains power without knowing it. Without knowing it. Almost defeats the whole point, right? <coughs> You may get it, but you won't know you got it. Dogen said, when Buddhas are truly Buddhas, they do not need to be aware of being Buddhas. There is nothing special about being who you are. And that's what makes it so special and so precious. There is nothing special about being authentically you. Yet, it is rare. Not because we're not it. It's because of what we trust, of what we put our trust in. And because we are misaligned. So when the head and tail are realized as unified, they are both Forgotten. The head does what it needs to do and the tail does what it needs to do. As all body parts, right? But work together, naturally unified, not arguing with one another as right hand arguing with the left hand. In Young Jia's collection of meditation, it says, now when I speak of knowing, you do not need to know knowing. Just know, that's all. Then, before, you do not continue extinction and after, you do not bring on production. The continuity of before and after is broken and in between is solitary and alone. Now if you remember today, in what we did outside, a bit of Aikido practice, I mentioned that the point of, I asked you to examine the point of contact, standing in front of your partner, reaching out with the arm and making contact with your partner's arm, and examine that point of contact, the quality of the connection, right? You and the other person. Can you be neutrally there without an agenda, without pushing, pulling, extending but staying neutral at the same time, right? And often there is some kind of agenda, right? We're trying to push or, or we're not giving enough and then the arm starts to fall away, right? It's it, neutrality in, in this case is naturalness, 
it's, it's alive, it's extended, the arm is extended towards the other person, towards the center line of the other person, but it is not waiting for anything else to happen. It is perfectly satisfied and at ease with that position, not knowing what's going to happen next. So when we, when we do that, we cut out the expectations of before and we do not allow the mind's predictions and projections to take the attention away from that experience, from that point of contact. That's all there is to it. It's just this. And in that, there is no knowing or there is no knowing of knowing because everything is naturally there. Nothing, nothing is missing in that instance. The pushing, the pulling, all that stuff is revealing something we can work with. Fears, trepidations, expectations, Thoughts, whatever is going on, is being revealed. There's a lot there. You just stand in, some, in front of somebody, you raise the arm, and you meet arms. There's a lot to study in this. Of course, we're, well, you know, we're just doing this. What's next? Where's that going? I don't get it. How quickly we want to look for something else. You can study that for years. Just that. And you will not get somewhere. You will not extinguish this study or, the, or eliminate the need to further that study. So as he says, the continuity of before and after is broken and in between is solitary and alone. Now, it may sound a bit contradictory, but when the continuity of before and after is broken, what was and what will be are already present in what is. Because everything is here. Everything shows up all at once. As in, when you sit down, the whole world sits down. When you get up, the whole world gets up. How do we understand that? Right? So when we look at this, it makes no sense. And then we move on, right? Because it makes no sense. I don't get it. I don't know. It's stupid. It's silly or whatever. I don't, I don't understand. But wait, stay with that. Stay and look deeper and deeper and deeper and see what else is going on here. Or use different faculties of your being, not just one faculty. Everything has to be used when we explore. The entirety of our being has to show up all at once for, the, for real exploration to take place. And then we can experience truly being merged. It is very comforting, actually. You know, when you get to a point that you can reach your arm out and then make contact with another person, and both, both parts or both sides of this are equally extending and relaxed and neutral. It's an incredible feeling. And in Marshall, uh, from Marshall's perspective, it's very important because 
That's how you read an opening. Slight movement can lead to an end of another person because a tiny movement can reveal an opening, a weakness on the other side. Now we're not talking about martial applications, but you can, there's a lot of information that can be read in that point of contact. You can read your opponent's mind in that moment. But there is, there is that as a way to understand merging and the great death in Zen is also known as the great merger, which is the experience of body and mind dropping away. Everything drops away. And body and mind drop away when body and mind are unified. What drops away is the division between body and mind, between tail and head. What drops away is what we superimpose. What drops away is what's not there to begin with. So when body and mind drop away and the person is in alignment with reality, the person is reality itself. His Dogen refers to this by saying, all things coming and carrying out practice enlightenment through the self is realization. Or in a way, what you think is you is verified through what you think is not you. And all that remains is a continuous experience of totality. So if you look outside and you see a tree or a lake, well, that's not me. But if you go beyond that, beyond that way of thinking, and you look at that, that is telling you who you are beyond what you think you are. But there is a, a, a jump, a leap, in order to see that. We have to, in a way, jump out of what we think we are. Or jump out of what we think, period. Okumula said, in Zazen, our practice is to let go of our fabricated mental gap or map, actually, uh, to open the hand of thought and thereby sit down on the ground of reality. Thinking can only produce a distorted mental copy of the world, and this copy is based on karmic experiences. So Alzazen is, is not a method of correcting the distortion of our conceptual maps. Instead, we just let go of the map and sit down on the earth of reality. So we have to see the error so we can realize the real. We have to see the, the false. So the footnote to the line when Head and tail are directly well matched, says the path of roller, ruler and subject meet, above and below harmonize. And this is referring to deep state of realization where one lives in complete accordance with the surrounding reality and with other people.
And it means to function without leaving any traces, regardless of what happens. It may feel like an impossible challenge, but as practitioners, we don't worry about interpretations, right? Whether I think it's going to be easy or it's going to be difficult, doesn't really matter. We just sit, we just get up, we just do this, we just do that. That's all. And if we see it that way, then the it is difficult or it is easy fades away. Because it's not needed. You don't need to project, will that be easy, will that be difficult, in order to do what needs to be done. You just do it. So the head and tail, obviously, are just brought up as upaya, right? It's a skillful means to describe something. So we can practice with some sense of direction and have, in a way, signposts. But in reality, nobody jumps between this and that, between realization and actualization, right? Delusion is where, is where everything is. Right? So realization and delusion are all here. Everything is here. Or another way to say that is realization is delusion. Delusion is realization. The verse, a compass for a ruler, sorry, compass for the circle, a ruler for the square. As Dogen said, and he came back and they asked him, came back from China and asked him, what did you learn? And he said, eyes are horizontal, nose is vertical. That's all. That's all there is to it. It is actually simple. Buddhism is simple. We are complicated. Which is what, we, of course, we work with. Then it says, with use it functions well, with neglect it hides. Rarely met with, yet here it is. When you use it, it functions well. Then you're not looking for it. But you may be using it and looking for it at the same time. But when we use it, it's the same as my actions are the ground upon which I stand. We understand what that means. All there is, is my actions, the consequences of my actions. I cannot escape those consequences. That's all there is, which, what I was saying yesterday morning, Instead of having the, you know, the Jikido running around getting people on time, Jikido is going to walk around, ring the bell a few times, go sit, and if you're there on time, you're going to sit with the Sangha. If you're not there on time, you're going to sit here in the Dharma Hall. Either way, it's fine. There'll be consequences. Right? Because you're going to sit here by yourself. There'll be consequences to that. Whatever we do, there will be consequences. And again, that's all there is to it. 
right? But if you're late, you sit down and think, I am so, I'm stupid. They must be thinking something about me. That's already way too much. If you're late, that's it. Sit down. That's it. Do not add anything to it. You make a mistake, own up, do what you can, move on. Move on. Because time swiftly passes by. Because it is precious now. This is precious. And we go to the head to think about that. What does it mean about me? We reject life. Then we are the running dead. Stupid and bumbling, a bird dwelling in reeds, going back and forth, a sheep caught in a fence. And it's us, right, dwelling in either the absolute or the relative, what we think it is, stuck in the fence, not going this, not going forward, not going back. Eating others' food, sleeping in one's own bed. Clouds rise and rain falls. Dew collects and turns to frost. So are we using our own power, eating others' food, sleeping in one's own bed? It's like that line, right? Living in your house and paying rent to someone else. Clouds rise, rains fall, dew collects and turns to frost. This is it. This is, this is the Dharma. Just that. When it rains, the ground is wet. Right? If somebody asks what is Zen, you can use that. When it rains, the ground is wet. The well-aligned jewel string passes through the needle's eye. The embroidered thread unceasingly vomits from the shuttle's gut. Alignment requires precision. Two arrows meeting in midair, right? A box and its lid. It's like threading a fine string, a thread, into the eye of a needle. The perfectly embroidered thread is constantly being shot out from the shuttle of the loom as it goes back and forth naturally. Right? It's referring to the Beautiful simplicity of our everyday interactions and expressions as life is being woven in front of our eyes. And the most mundane has the power to reveal the most profound. The stone woman stops weaving, the night's colors turn towards noon. A wooden man travels the road and the moon's silhouette moves to half full. Really beautiful poetry. These images refer to a state of being after a long, withering process, drying out completely. Maybe not drying out completely, or as much as losing interest in ourselves, losing interest in our thoughts. Yeah, I know. I see those thoughts. I've, I've been seeing them for decades. I don't learn anything new there. 
they just repeat themselves again and again and again. There is a lot more interesting things around me. I will turn my attention to that. There are many people to care for and love. A lot more interesting than this cyclical. Right, so no more maneuvering in the mind, no more running after borrowed concepts or mental projections. And night and day merge and we realize what we chant in the Sandokai, light and darkness are a pair, like the foot before and the foot behind in walking. Trying to walk on one is realizing without actualizing or actualizing without realizing, right? So, so to truly function, realization and actualization are, are unified like the foot before and the foot behind in walking. If they're not unified, we hop. Don't get very far. So the canvas of reality is perfectly woven with horizontal fibers and vertical fibers. Form and formlessness, all together. You drop one, you drop the other. Now, Sashin can be challenging on, on so many levels, right? You know, dealing with achy and tired body, along with the emotional and psychological sediments that rise on the surface. Maybe by now you may be counting the hours left until we pack it up and go back home. Soak in a hot bathtub. Watch our favorite TV show. Or anything else that provides a temporary sense of comfort. But then we get through that, and then what? So the body feels better, and then what? Right? What are we doing? But as challenging as it may be, please do not pack it up yet. Don't go anywhere. Still practice fully being here now, today. There is no tomorrow. Because if we're not here today, we're not going to be there tomorrow. Or if we are divided here, we will be divided there. Because we're not practicing unity. So to practice unity, it means to not go home when you're not going home. It means when you sit down, don't get up. When you get up, don't sit down. That's what it means. So practice staying. Stay, stay, stay. And it's very important and urgent because this can lead to a whole new expression of compassion and love. And I, I want to end with something from uh, Chongyam Trumpa on relative bodhicitta, which is actually, which is how we there is the arising bodhicitta, which we, of course we have to cultivate on the cushion, in our practice, during sashin. But then there is the relative bodhicitta, which is after, which is how we actualize what we realize. And he said that 
relative bodhicitta is related with how we start, how we start to learn to love each other and ourselves. That seems to be the basic point. It's very difficult for us to learn to love. It would be possible for us to love if an object, if an object of fascination were presented to us or if there was some kind of dream or promise presented. We know how to love in that way. Maybe then we could learn to love, but it is very hard for us to learn to love if it means purely giving love without expecting anything in return. It's very difficult to do that. When we decide to love somebody, we usually expect that person to fulfill our desires and conform to our hero worship. It's true, right? If our expectation can be fulfilled, we can fall in love, ideally. So in most of our love affairs, what usually happens is that our love is absolutely conditional. It is more of a business deal than actual love, right? I give you this, you give me that. If you don't give me that, I'm going to stop giving you this. So we have no idea how to communicate a sense of warmth. When we begin to communicate a sense of warmth to somebody, it makes us very uptight. And when our object of love tries to cheer us up, it becomes an insult. That is a very aggression-oriented approach. In the Mahayana tradition, love and affection are largely based on free love, open love, which does not ask anything in return. It is a mutual dance. Even if during the dance you step on each other's toes, it is not regarded as problematic or an insult. We do not have to get on our high horse or be touchy about that. Right? And how often we do that? How often we get touchy or defensive right? when somebody does something or somebody hurts us? Right? Intentionally or unintentionally. We get on our high horse, as he says, and we become touchy about that. So we have to learn how to love. To open is one of the hardest things for us, for all of us, yet we are conditioned by passion all the time. Since we are in the human realm, our main focus or characteristic is passion and lust all the time. So what the Mahayana teaching, teachings are based on is the idea of communication, openness, and being without expectations. And that's the whole point of being fully present, neutrally being fully present, without an agenda, meeting another person with, with an open heart, open mind, just openness, readiness, not knowing. You cut off the before and you cut off the after. So you free yourself from expectations. That's incredible. You free yourself from expecting this person to do this or not to do that. That's true compassionate action. Or that leads to true compassionate action. And the last part, he says, when we begin to realize 
that the nature of phenomena is free from concept, empty by itself, that the chairs, the tables, and rugs, and curtains, and walls are no longer in the way, then we can expand our notion of love infinitely. There is nothing in the way. Well, we bring the obstacles. We superimpose the obstacles. And then we claim that we are trapped. And the, the very purpose of discussing the nature of shunyata or emptiness is to provide us that emptiness, so that that sense of emptiness, so that we could fill the whole of space with a sense of affection, love without expectations, without demand, without possession. That is one of the most powerful things that the Mahayana has to contribute. So when we speak of emptiness, we speak of love unconditionally. It sounds like a big jump, right, for us. Like, well, how does this even connect to that? But that's what it means. It's that sense of openness and sense of neutrality which naturally allows for all things to be. And then nothing is missing. No one is missing. So that's the bottom line. Right? This is where our practice needs to come to life. So the last few hours of this sashin, right? tomorrow we hold Jukai, very precious. We're going to have get-together over informal lunch. Again, very precious. And then we're going to scatter all over, right? Some to the east, some to the west. But then, how do we mobilize this? How do we bring it to life? is really the main question, the most important question for a practitioner. So please stick around for a while. Thank you.